if you are lighter there are you know there are rewards almost and there's advantages to being lighter whether it was even in school who liked you did the boys like you did they think you were pretty no i love to be athletic be you know all these things be funny that was the other one and so i think it it wasn't ever direct conversation but it was always in the you know the language that was used the, the kind of stories that were being told about who got what and how that you realize that ah in this language of beauty i don't think i'm i don't yeah. think i'm there Salam and hello everyone my name is Lily Bakala Piper and as always we are so happy that you've joined us today So over the last many years throughout film media music you know all those places that we look for for cultural cues I feel like the conversation around color and the beauty of the melanin in our people has started to change maybe it started when Lupita won her oscar a few years ago maybe it started before that maybe it's the prevalence of the themes of shows of movies like black panther into our everyday conversations that has started to portray the diversity and the beauty and the wealth of our continent in different ways but on more global stages but behind the scenes of that i'm sure all of us have sat down with our girlfriends our cousins our sisters and talked about the ways in which we want to show up in spaces whether it's family reunions or a wedding you know how much thought goes into what you wear you know how you're doing your hair none of us just show up all of us you know have deep conversations you know exchanging ideas getting feedback before we step out because how we look matters our beauty matters and for a mother of two daughters i've thought a lot about how do i give them the most positive engagement with themselves and confidence in themselves that i can and actually for my sons too quite frankly because i feel like you know men are not outside of the the gaze of how they show up and how they look and i feel like there are no easy answers a couple of years ago you might remember that chris rock put out a movie called good hair where he kind of uncovered or, or unveiled the whole industry behind chemical relaxers in the black american community in particular and he kind of traced it back to where do we get weaves from and he showed us you know in india how these all the hair was being bought etc cetera, etc cetera. he got a lot of pushback from that film yet in the wake of that film which came out in 2009 we've seen a revolution in the hair care industry natural hair has taken off there are more products and services than there everywhere before and definitely when i was a kid we did not have those options or those products you know in the grocery store we could just pick up i feel like the other side of the coin though with african hair is our skin we either don't talk about it at all or growing up there were nicknames and teasing depending on how dark or light you were interestingly enough one of my kids gets a lot of teasing for not being dark enough but i feel like conversations around skin and colorism have not yet hit the global stage or conversation in the way that our conversations around our hair has but that's why i'm excited about today's conversation we have a friend of the show my producer rahma um during some of our conversations about topics that we want to talk about this season mentioned her dear friend alaba angole alaba is a zambian she's a researcher she's currently a road scholar at oxford university and she is deeply thinking about the impact of colorism and skin skin bleaching products on our communities not just in zambia but across the continent and the diaspora alaba's research has not just been specifically in this one area but she is a student of many different disciplines she has studied chemistry she's a social anthropologist 
And now she's really focusing through her work um, underneath this uh, sponsorship of, of, as a Rhodes Scholar of looking about how to deconstruct social constructs around colorism, gender inequity, gender-based violence, and sexual assault. Her research sheds light on the intricate social dynamics of skin-bleaching goods. That's hard to say, by the way. Skin-bleaching goods. And the business, as well as the infrastructure, network, and toxicity issues. So basically, how this big industry creeps into our everyday lives, affects our identity, affects how we engage with each other and the world. It's a really important topic. And I think the more we know, the better we can do. You know better, you do better. So I'm really delighted to welcome Alava. Alava. See, I, we were talking before. I knew I was going to mispronounce it because she was telling me the different words that people <laughs> use or different way they say her name. So Alava. Alava. I'm so pleased thank to have you here you and so delighted to talk me. about your research today. So thank, thank you, you for being here on Salam and Hello. Thank you <laughs> so I've given a bit of a long intro to this because I think it is not a secret topic, mm -hmm. but I know for myself, I've never really read the research around skin bleaching products mm -hmm. or colorism. And I just have my experience to go on. And I feel like that's where so, so many of us are. So tell me, it's not a new topic, but I think the understanding of it is. So tell me, as you're looking at the, at the topic, what are some of the roots you see for why colorism is something that we still deal with? Mm -hmm. And secondly, how would you define it for maybe the person who hasn't really had a term for what they maybe have experienced? Yeah, um, so I'll start with the definition. Uh, so colorism uh, refers to the preferential treatment of lighter skinned people within an ethnic group um, or the discrimination of darker skinned people, depending mm -hmm. on how you would like to think about it. And um, the, what was the second The question? roots, the roots and the of roots. that, yeah. Well, I think the roots, it's a complicated question I'm finding because a lot of the readings that I came across often went back to colonialism as a starting point. But then there's been research that's shown that in many cultures, pre-colonial uh, mm. times, people already had ideas about lightness, whiteness, brightness, which were considered esteemed. So to speak about the roots, I think, depends on the location. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think many places have a fixed answer, but I think colonialism is often where people start from um, and, and move to mm. other conversations around colorism. Yeah. To be honest, that, that's a bit hard to hear that it's not from colonialism, yeah. you know, because then that makes it you look, we have to look deeper then. Yeah. I mean, I will say globally, I have yet to come across a culture where the words dark or black are associated with something positive. Hmm. So even linguistically, I think that's quite an interesting, for me, that's a more interesting place to start. How we, you know, said these were black people, but also had ideas of what was black and what, you know, and it was often dirty or bad or, you know, the end of something, whereas white was, you know, pure. And yeah, so of course. that conversation has, I think, been happening in many cultures around the world for a long time. Of course. Um, yeah. So I think it would be really hard to say where exactly it started because mm -hmm. I don't think anyone really has a full grip on it. But most research will just say, especially in the African context, let's think about how colonialism perpetuated it. Sure. Yeah. And it's, when you say it like that, it, it makes complete sense. The first thing that comes up to my mind is like black magic mm. is, is the negative connotation of, it, of, of magic. You know, so you're so right. If we think about just the language you use and how do we associate them. Yeah. So when you're thinking about colorism or when you were thinking about it, was skin bleaching products kind of like the natural place to start or was there something that triggered that particular focus for your research for you? 
Um, I think it was my own experience growing up. Mm. So I didn't have the language of, you know, skin bleaching or colorism growing up, but I, I had social cues constantly. So I'm Zambian-Ugandan, um, but I grew up in Zambia, so I identify more with my Zambianness. Sure. But my complexion is more, and my features are more Ugandan. So growing up, there was always a kind of othering, whether it was subtle or pronounced, where people made it quite clear that my complexion, they were, you know, they had ideas attached to what my skin looked like. Um, there were things about whether I would be smart academically. There were things about whether I'd be friendly based on just how I looked, even though I'm a fairly smiley person. Um, so for me, the starting point was my own experience. And as I grew up, I realized that people were having more conversations of, you know, this is something you can change. It's not something you're stuck with, wow. you know? And so I was like, wow. oh, okay, now there's more language. What, what does that mean? What does that mean for what, what, what can I do? Especially as a student at that point and very young, I had no money. Um, and then I noticed that a lot of people around me, were, their skin was changing, but it wasn't, again, a thing that I was like, oh, this must be skin bleaching. It was right. the natural thing. Maybe they weren't spending as much time outside as I was or, you know, different things like that. And it was only later, I think that I, as I grew older, the language came to me, but it was only much later in life that I was like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. People are using products yeah. that, you know, are enhancing in their language, the tone of their skin. And that was linked to what people were telling you. Oh, you don't have to exactly. stay in the so skin you're in. It yeah. was positioned as a problem, but it always came with a solution. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. So growing up, I think that was when I was like, oh, okay. So if you are lighter, there are, you know, there are rewards almost. And there's advantages to being lighter, whether it was even in school, who liked you? Did the boys like you? Did they think you were pretty? No, I love her. Be athletic. Be, you know, all these things. Be funny. That was mm -hmm. the other one. And so I think it... It wasn't ever direct conversation, but it was always in the, you know, the language that was used, the, the kind of stories that were being told about who got what and how that you realize that, ah, in this language of beauty, I don't think I'm, I don't yeah. think I'm there. It's not a you know, I don't me. think that's, there's a space for me there. Yeah. And maybe that, that means I have to work on other aspects of my um, identity. Wow. That, that's, that's heavy. I've had conversations with my girlfriends who are of a different tone than I am. And we have talked about, or they have said, light-skinned privilege. Like there yeah. is this actual privilege that you walk around the world in. And as an Ethiopian, definitely in our society, it has to be said, there's definitely a preference for the fairer skin, 100%. I wanted to sit with what you said because I think a lot of people listening will relate to that. And how did that make you feel? You've kind of told us the words and the experience of it, um, kind of more in the headspace, but how did that feel within and did you try and adjust I think the main word that I can come back to is insecure mm. I think that it informed a lot of how I moved in the world because I already knew how I was being perceived and I already every space I moved into I already came with that baggage of you know this is these are the ideas about me that people have but I will say that sitting here now I mean many years later and many experiences later, I have such a different sense of self. And I'm really grateful for that because there are so many experiences that happened that shouldn't have if I had the confidence or if I had a sense of self that was more solid. Mm -hmm. So it, it definitely made me feel, um, it, ma it made me feel othered yeah. in, in many ways. And to be honest, I probably did nothing about it. One, because I was a poor student <laughs> and 
Secondly, because my mother would have not tolerated it. She was Love very much, it. you are beautiful, yeah. you are beautiful. And, you know, I'd yeah. always say, yeah, you have to say that. You're my mother. Yeah. But my mom is actually, I think she's always been very, um, she's always been a, a pillar of strength in that way that she's always reminded me. Even though, to be honest, she may have had her own worries. I remember when I was going to university at the, for the first time, I was thinking about going to University of Cape Town. And I know that one of the thoughts that she was constantly thinking about was how are they going to treat her because already here when she's close to home I'm constantly having to console her about the bullying and people saying you know all kinds of things about her when she's out there and you know in Cape Town's fairly white very you know? very white and I, the experiences <laughs> yeah. that you have there yeah, and the founding of apartheid is exactly there. Yeah. and so I understand where those feelings came from um but I think even though she had that she always reinforced that I was beautiful. Black was beautiful. She kind of borrowed all these, yeah, you know, conversations from elsewhere. And I think that was really helpful in me progressing to a more confident um, person. Well, we have yeah. to appreciate your mom for, I'm sure, many things, but particularly of also positioning maybe your mindset to be able to think about this now as research and yeah. how important that is. I'm just thinking about so many circles in which outside the continent, I think yeah. primarily in the diaspora in particular, where you not only are not in a black country, but then you may not have a, you know, what's it called? A critical mass of black people around you to reaffirm your identity in yeah. so many ways and how important this research will be. So as you started off kind of your process of starting to think about researching this, what were some of the things that you immediately discovered about this industry or about the products that were being used, you know, across the continent? I think one of the main things that drew my attention was the toxic chemicals that were being used and often the ways in which the industry kind of greenwashes what it is that they're doing. You know, the labeling is it's organic, it's natural. Is that what um, it means by greenwashing? Is that they put that kind of a, um, a leaf on the container? I don't think that's word, but it's the word <laughs> yeah. that I find, I think they use it in a different sense for mm -hmm. when companies that are doing a lot of environmental damage come in and say, oh, but we're actually doing these good causes with the environment and we're helping climate change in this way. So they kind of, you know, cleanse themselves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's the same. So you're having, you know, an industry that knows that they're pumping all kinds of chemicals into people, but sometimes there's mislabeling. I was very interested in that. Mm. I was very interested in how the users themselves, who often see the effects of the products, are dealing or negotiating that kind of toxicity what does it mean to them because mm -hmm. when I think of toxicity I think of risk so how are they negotiating that risk yeah. and are they finding that it is that the reward makes sense you yeah. know because it's one thing to be very critical of people who use these creams or products and it's another thing to actually say let's think about how and why they're in this position Absolutely. and use that as a as a conversational starter rather than it being we know who you are and you know problematize their whole experience yeah. i think that's less productive and i think that's why anthropology has been really meaningful to me because it allows me to sit with people and get to their whys you know absolutely well yeah. it makes me think about how i i'm sh i shouldn't say i'm sure but it seems to me that a lot of times as black women in particular because of the treatment we've received from society, there is a level of shame that we mm. either are unaware of entirely in us or we carry because of however we don't fit into yeah. whatever place we are. So you saying, you know, wanting to interrogate their wives becomes really important because yeah. I, I am wondering if a woman decides to do, you know, introduce toxicity into her routine, yeah. how do you as a researcher kind of make it 
separate from an issue of not necessarily shaming her, but introducing that element or how do you, you know what I mean? It feels yeah. like a very tender point because this yeah. is your skin, your largest organ, I think, right? Yeah, if I'm it is. Correct. Yeah. So it's not a small thing. So um, how do you parcel that out as you're either exploring the research and or, you know, talking to your subjects? Yeah, I think the one thing is that the researchers who've come before me, a lot of them, um, their work pathologized users in a way that didn't quite connect with the experiences or conversations I was having with people mm. who use these products. There was lots of conversation of their, you know, their, um, they have inferiority complexes, they have no sense of self, they hate themselves, all of these things, which are quite heavy things to put Very, on people. Of course. Um, and then I have conversation with someone, and this is one of the most confident people. And they use the products. And for them, it's, it's a calculation. Mm -hmm. These products make me look more beautiful, which means I have more this, you know? And that for me has always been more interesting. And I think the other thing is anthropology as a discipline, even though it has a very hectic history, um, what it's allowed me to do or the skills that it's given me are the ability to take away my own views of the world, my mm. own understandings, and make room for how other people make sense of the world and make that safe. And I think that's really important with this kind of work. When you're speaking to how people take care of their bodies, when you're speaking to intimate practices, you can't go to the conversation with judgment mm. because you won't get anywhere. It's much easier to approach the conversation and say, so what do these products mean to you? Why do you, why do you use them? What is this routine? You know, how do, how do you afford it? How do you calculate that risk? Because another thing to remember is a lot of people using these products, in, especially in parts of Zambia, can't necessarily afford the highest end of these products. You yeah, know? wow. Yeah. So there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of negotiation. And I, I think what helps me have these conversations and do that separation is... <sighs> There's just so there's just so many experiences out there in the world. And the ones that I have are so different from the ones that you have. And there are some similarities. And that's okay. That's, you know, it's really interesting that you put it that way. The words that jump out to me are like the sense of um, understanding, making sense of the industry, number one, or the, or the people. Yeah. Creating more safety through your research. And then also coming to a conclusion that perhaps the use of these products for some people has to be okay like we have to create space for someone to sit with that as well yeah which kind of makes me feel like uh for me if i bring it down to okay how do i relate to that is you know the natural hair movement i feel like when it first started it was like everyone get out of relaxers now 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 yeah. you know like we don't care what you have to do grow it out do the big chop da, 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 da. and then it's like now the last two or three years everyone's like listen do what you got to do because yeah. life is people hectic. Going back people are busy yeah. you know how do we no one has time for a wash day who yeah. has time for out of seven days to yeah. give it a whole day to just do hair and there's something refreshing about that in the sense that okay let are we then reclaiming our agency mm, as, as black women in particular, yeah. just to say, you know what, I'm going to do what works for me. You can keep it moving however you need to keep it moving, you know? Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the flip side is that toxicity that you're talking about and yeah. the risks that people are willing Taking to negotiate. Yeah. Um, so some of the research and data I saw, and it's a bit old from who, was that in 2011, they said that around 40% of African women were bleaching their skin, which seems incredibly yeah. high. I don't think it's even you know, reflective enough. Yeah, because they would have to admit it, right, to somebody. So there's, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. a silent maybe minority. So when you talk to people who are navigating that risk, is it simply the, the simple benefit of self-worth that 
they're satisfied with? Or are there other outcomes that they're seeing? I guess it's a reflection of sight. I don't know. It's yeah. so, so complex. I'm just trying to understand it as I talk to you. you I know? think it depends a lot on who you're speaking to. Because what I don't want to do is make it seem like there's one you know, one explanation you're, or one. You're a proper academ- academician. You're like, <laughs> no, there's no one way, which is true. true. It's absolutely. And I think the other thing is just making making room that for the fact that these people have agency. And what you will notice, so I follow a lot of social media conversations around this. In Zambia, a few months ago, I think the conversation came up again about banning these creams. And the comments were really interesting because people were saying, my body, my choice, which is a, you know, a conversation used in a, in a different place. And then people said, but it's my skin. And if I die, I die. You know, so there were a wow. range of comments that I found particularly interesting. But what it really spoke to was that people are, you know, they're saying, this is me. And this is what I'm choosing to do. And so when we start bringing conversations about banning and judgment, all of these things, just stop conversation, you know, whereas it's more interesting to say, but how did you get to the point where this is, you know, a risk that you are active? In fact, you don't even think of it as a risk. It's just a way of being in the world. It's another option. Exactly. And I think what would be more interesting is, are there safer ways for people to do the things that they want to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, because in these countries that have banned it, um, you know, you, you mentioned that Zambia is not quite there, but no. if, I, if I'm if i correct in my notes, the, several significant countries have, Ghana, Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, and Cameroon, Rwanda. Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And in the wake of banning them, a lot of underground markets have also popped up. And you yes. mentioned about, you know, that if you can't afford the top-notch one that maybe has been, tested and proven to not have less effects and you're yeah. buying a kind of a lower end product you know when you talk when you see that happening though is i mean what is the the outcome for women potentially we've talked kind of around it that there is might be a trade off in terms of health yeah. but what are those trade offs you know what are these chemicals that are causing these governments to actually ban yeah. these products yeah so you have people using you know mercury laden products you have people using uh what are they corticosteroids Mm -hmm. now glutathione's a new one on the market which is you know an iv drip that people are using and it's often to lighten skin yeah so it's often packaged as this Uh anti-aging rejuvenating product but what it actually does when used in excess is brighten whiten your skin wow you know okay and so the regulation of these things is really, really tough because they're popping up in all kinds of places in hair salons, you know, there's med spas. And because the language of what the product is doesn't reflect what it actually does, right. it becomes a lot harder to regulate. And do, do a lot of these governments have the capacity to really investigate what's in these products? That's hmm. another thing. Do we have the capacity to enforce what yeah. we find in that investigation? Yeah. And the other thing I will say is, doing this research now, it's not necessarily seen as a priority in many parts of the world. Um, in Zambia, one of the challenges I've had is, you know, even when I'm doing the research, people ask me, is this really that important? Like we have HIV, we have TB. Sure. Why should we, you Where know, why are we focused on this? on the list of priorities, yeah. But one, it's a, the fact that it's growing in the way that it does is a conversation that should be have, I mean, it should be had. And another thing is that like, if it's everywhere, you know? Yeah. How can this not be important? It's affecting our health. Skin cancer is rising. Definitely. Liver failure is rising. All these things. And we're not necessarily making those connections that these products may be contributing to these outcomes. 
So this like research of this sort is really important to me because it does that. And while we have HIV and TB, and those are very important conversations to be to be having, this is also part of that because we're thinking about the overall health of our communities. Yeah, of course. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me that the conversation may shift from the medical and physical outcomes that may happen as opposed to maybe the anti-Black mm. strategy that informed them in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you might have to convince people because it's a medical risk to them because the whole idea that it, being anti-Black is not yeah. landing with people in the same way. And and I'm being educated as I talk to you to yeah. think that I came into this conversation that there's no way this can be positive. And when you think my body, my choice, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I just have such a strong reaction to it. Like, how can this be anything but anti-Black? Mm. You know, but I will say recently, my husband uh, traveled to India and yeah. he brought me back like a, a box of products. Yeah. Like, he, this was pretty wrapping. Yeah. Like, in, India has really perfected the art of like, wrapping <laughs> packages. He had no idea what was inside, but he's just like, I, I better bring yeah, my wife something back. <laughs> so he brought me something back. So anyways, I opened these containers and I was like, and like you said, it said brightening cream. It mm -hmm. did not say skin brightening or skin whitening. It said brightening cream. I was like, babe, you brought me back skin bleaching products? He's like, no, I didn't. I was like, let me show you. He's, he's like mortified. <laughs> but like you said, that like this, to me, that's where the subtle messaging does feel like it's anti-Black. Right? Yeah. That's where it feels like to me that, you know, when you see people, and it's not just Black people, Asians yeah. as well, yeah. walking around with umbrellas outside, yeah. you know, yeah. you're thinking, what are you afraid of? Is it the health mm. risk? Or is this an aversion to being darker? You know what I mean? The complication there is that a lot of the products are in their marketing, they're all very packaged like self-care. Exactly. So in and you have like ways, this beautiful, silky looking woman. People are taking care of themselves. And, they look, and that's how they're selling in it their, In their view, they're taking care of themselves. This is a part of having a care routine, you know? Gosh. So you... I think you said earlier that you have a strong reaction to it. And I think that's something I'd like to leave this conversation knowing that you, you have to, with certain things, you have to kind of drop your own reaction mm. to be able to make room for what's actually happening. Yeah. Otherwise, you will not be able to have a conversation that's productive or be able to, to um, be part of shifting any perspectives because there's no base understanding, you know, of even course. if the understanding is that I don't understand, don't understand it, it, yeah. but absolutely. I'm curious about it. No, absolutely. And, and again, I, I hate to keep it coming back to hair, but it's, I think it's similar, right? Like yeah. it's people judging women who get relaxers mm. thinking, but you don't know her life. You don't know, you know, their life and what they experience every day and what they have to do to make room for themselves, yeah. you know? And so I Appreciate you checked me on that. Thank you. We did it very diplomatically. And this is why you're the researcher and I'm the podcaster. But I appreciate that because I think at the end of the day, you know, we do need to make room for blackness in all of its shades and forms. Yeah. But probably for people my age, so I'm, mm. you know, late 40s, the, the person who comes to mind is like Michael Jackson, you mm -hmm. know, and that just felt like a series for him when you look at his life of like self-torture and all mm. that. So that's why I associate with, you know, when I think about skin, because that was not real, right? His skin? So I'm not sure. It's okay. come up a couple of times I'm in sorry, conversation. I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. No, no, no. Like, I'm actually not sure, Jackson's but I think us. the conversations I've heard around vertigo. Vertigo, yeah. Yeah, vertiligo, him, yeah. Then trying to balance out. Uh, now, I don't know how much of that yeah. is, you know, factual. Fair, uh, fair, fair. I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I've looked into yeah. it very deeply. But yeah. that is often an example that people go to. But it's usually to make the point of anti-blackness. Yeah, because he know? fixed his nose, did all that to, not fixed, he 
yeah. had the surgery on his nose and all that, all that, yeah. you know? So. But then that comes back to the same, you know, I think that's my, yeah. my worry is that it comes back to the same thing of thinking that people who use these products are, in fact, a lot of them say, I'm not trying to be white. I'm just trying to be a different black, hmm. you know? And so it complicates our own ideas. Even my own as a very yeah. dark-skinned woman. Yeah. I'm yeah. sitting next to a woman who's told me that she was once my complexion, but now she's, you know, way, way lighter. And she feels that her life is better and that she's appreciated more and she's been able to have more success in her career. Hmm. And then I think about myself and I think, oh. But I'm also having success in my career. Yeah, no? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, but then also, to be honest, I can't take away the role of privilege in that. That's just what I was about to bring yeah, it to. Yeah, I think I've sure. been I've been very privileged in many ways. So again, to go to judgment immediately is hard, fair, you know, because fair, I yeah. might say, you know, even when I speak about colorism, sometimes I have this internal like contradiction, like I'm a very dark skinned woman and I'm, you know, I wouldn't say I've reached the peak of my success, but I think academically I'm on the path that I at one point could have only dreamed of, mm. you know? And so what does, what does that mean for me to say that colorism is a thing, but to also be a person who's a Rhodes Scholar and at the University of Oxford or all these things that people associate with success? It's a tough conversation, yeah. but I've been very privileged. And, and in a way, I think some of the access that I've been afforded has kind of protected me from, mm. from having to experience that gaze in the, in the work sense, in the academic sense. Definitely. It didn't prevent the dating sense. Yeah. It didn't prevent how that, you know, how that affected the kind of relationships I, I was able to have and the conversations around those relationships. Mm. But in some ways, it's blocked out a lot of the things that other people of my complexion have to deal with. Yeah, that's, I appreciate you saying that because we all come to this with a lot of privilege. I come to this conversation with a lot of privilege. And yeah, I think as Black people, we still have to live with a world that interacts with us yeah. in very different ways, depending on how we we show up. You mentioned your work as a Rhodes Scholar, though, so I want to go that way. Um, because you have studied law. I didn't even mention that in the intro. Yes, you studied yeah. chemistry, anthropology. <laughs> you must bring all of those disciplines to you, to Oxford and to Rhodes Scholar. And first, can I just say, well done. Thank you. Sis, so proud of you. <laughs> Thank I you very just much. met you today, but I Thank feel such you. pride in, you know, you being there. And so how do all of these disciplines show up there in the classroom with you or in your own thoughts as you try and analyze and understand this research topic? I think the, um, well, I didn't plan for this journey to play out um, as it has. <laughs> I'm really grateful that it has because, you know, it, it was all a mismatch at some point. And I remember my family you know, some people in my family thinking, what do you actually want yeah, to exactly. do? Law. What's your I'm plan? <laughs> you know? And I didn't plan it, but I'm happy. I've ended up here. And so the, the chemistry, I feel, informs my the way that I look at chemical composition of products, the way that I think about how they play with each other um, and how they might react. Mm. Uh, and what, you know, even when I think about how they are stored, how, you know, the packaging, all of that, I think the chemistry then influences that. I will admit it's not as sharp as it should be or used to be, but it does give me an appreciation of how chemicals work. Mm. Um, the law is really important for critical thinking. It's also really important for engaging with the kind of you know, laws and policies around yeah, the body. Yeah, I see the connection, yeah. You know, our, our rights with our own bodies. What kind of, like, what is, what's consumer protection? What does it actually look like mm -hmm. on the ground? What kind of regulatory authorities are at play? What, what do they have? What's their mandate? I think being able to have that background helps me read this, you know, helps me read this information with a bit more ease. And then the anthropology just gives me understanding, I think, mm -hmm. a lot more grace, which I carry in my personal life, but also in my um, academic life. It just gives me 
I think it gives me the room to let other people be whatever they are, however they show up. I'm always like, oh, this is fascinating. Where will this go? You know? So I've benefited a lot from all these different fields, even though I didn't plan for it. I'm really grateful that they come together and I hope to kind of sharpen them even though sometimes you feel like, oh, have I lost this bit of me? Where's the legal mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, it actually comes together quite nicely in my in my research. Well, just listening to you talk is quite, it's lovely to hear you talk. <laughs> I just feel, again, such pride because you are weaving a story of how the inter- interconnectedness of the disciplines actually brings so much more understanding. Mm-hmm. And then to land at anthropology where you're just curious. Yeah. And la- allowing that curiosity to continue to make space, yeah. which is really, I think, such a powerful and beautiful piece. So... When you think about your research and as you talk to people, as you're researching, you were telling me that you're now at closing out your research, six, yes, so six I more months or something like that? Yes, a couple months of field work and then field I will work, okay. write up and hopefully produce a body of work that is interesting. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. I'm curious at this point in your research study, as you are talking to people and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you're back home in Zambia, if yes. I understand correctly, doing this research, are you getting any pushback? Are people kind of resistant to either talking to you or talking about the industry as a whole? Mm. I definitely am getting pushback. I think one of the things that I find interesting is because it's so prevalent in Zambia, sometimes I walk into rooms asking for permission from people who are themselves engaging in the practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and skin... And, you know, bodily care is such a private thing. And I think as Africans, when it comes to speaking about our bodies, it's very much, you know, internal. We don't really want people to know exactly what we're doing. We just want them to know it It came packaged. Um, So I think that's some of the pushback that I'm getting when I when I go into rooms where people who have the power to allow me to do my research are themselves users. And maybe they are dealing with their own, you know reaction to what this work means they're in it exactly and unless I have time to really engage with them and position myself as someone who has I'm not coming into this to judge you I'm coming into this so we can pull different kinds of understanding Mm. of what's actually happening um so the pushback has been mostly from people who are using because it's so private but that's you know you kind of talk to them over time and then you build a relationship and eventually they feel like okay I'm a bit more comfortable doing that. Again, the beauty of anthropology uh, is that it gives you time with the people that you want to work with. Um, The other side of pushback, I think is more an institutional problem. Um, I've been in Zambia. I started this fieldwork last year in November, but really I only got to start four months ago, like four months into that waiting time. And that meant a big delay. And part of that was because the, I don't know if we have, an encouraging research culture at the moment. What does that mean? I think, so there's lots of research that has been done, whether of Zambians, by Zambians, all of that. But it's very hard to find this research. Mm. You know, you might have a body that's calling themselves, you know, a research institution. And you say, oh, I've read, I've seen that this paper exists. Can I have access to it? Can I read it? Oh, we'll look for the number. And then they can't find the number. Oh, we'll look for the research. They can't find the research. And so there's, I don't know what's happening. So there's the data collection. There's the production. I don't know where the research goes. Interesting. So it's hard to kind of follow mm. it. And then also because I don't think we have that richer research culture, people's initial reactions to, to you or to your work is like hesitation. Yeah. Like, oh, no, are you trying to call us out? Are you trying to make us look like we don't know what we're doing? And unless we have that, we can't be you know we can't be part of that conversation there's a lot of conversation about africans being a part of their own research absolutely and i think it might have been easier for someone who was not zambian 
and I might even say not African to do this research in Zambia. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because I, I, I spend a lot of time in the education space. And one of the things we talked about is that education is over-researched. Like these kids are like so used to someone coming in and being like A, B, C, like they would just become robots almost. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. We're under-researched and yet researched by our own people feels complicated. It's and over-complicated. Wow. There's a lot of, you know. Are you sure you're a researcher? Mm. There's a lot of fact-checking <laughs> that I don't think happens yeah. with other people. And I think it's good because sometimes you give people the platform and they produce absolute nonsense, which is sometimes really disrespectful. Mm -hmm. um, but the other side of it is, for example, I'm a Zambian, you know, a Zambian citizen. I've grown up in Zambia. Zambia is my home. But what I find also happens is, you know, people questioning my Zambianness. Mm -hmm. You don't look Zambian. Can we see your national identity? Why are you doing research wow. on, you know, so... I have to go through so many more barriers than I anticipated before I actually start to do the research, mm. before I actually start to have the conversations. And I think that lag is terrible if you think, and I think research is central to how, you know, a country can, can grow, how things can shift. Yeah, you have to course. have an understanding of what's happening. But if you don't have a, you know, a system that facilitates research, then, uh, it's, That's almost like a second uh, honestly, research topic. I was thinking that about alone, it. And yes. I've met some researchers in Zambia who are not Zambian, but African. And they've spoken about the same thing. Yeah. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just me. And the more I speak to people, the more I realize this is actually a problem. In these conversations, have you been able to talk to people also in the industry itself who are producing the products? Are they willing to talk to you? They are. But I think... Um, I think they're also very cautious. Mm, you know, there's, of course. Again, yeah. you know, it might be, are you trying to take our trade secrets? What do you <laughs> want to know? Are you trying to say that we're bad or mm. all of that? So I think I have had pushback and I think what's made it easier with some people is having having had a relationship with them before. So they've known that this is, this feels very natural. It's an Alaba thing to research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Alaba, the <laughs> researcher. Alaba doing Alaba. Remember she did exactly. Alaba? Remember that? <laughs> She's yeah. doing that thing she does. And then it's made it easier in, in that sense. Or having someone who knows the person, mm. then they can kind of, you know, make that a, yeah. a little easier. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it is, it is tough working. I mean, talking to people in the industry because they're also, they're trying, they want to make money. Yeah. You know, they so, want to make sure that you're not saying anything that tarnishes their brand. And I also have to make sure that I'm not doing that. But at the same time, I have to make sure that what I'm learning from them, right, I can put in my research and say, this is something you should know. Absolutely. And I think it comes back to like conscious consumption, which we talked about. I, I think the end goal for me would be, do we have enough information to be consuming the products that we're consuming in a way that makes sense for us in terms of the outcomes we perceive. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you're doing this research, any surprises that have come out that you didn't expect? Uh, I think the one I've been grappling with recently is the idea of what's organic. That one, mm. I'm slightly tickled by it, if I might say. <laughs> but, so I've always had an idea of, you know, when big brands put organic, then it means it's like, you know, no chemicals have been used yeah. in the production and ABCD. But when I'm speaking to... Um, users of these products one of the things they say oh yeah yeah i bought this one because it's very natural and organic and i say oh what makes it natural and organic mm. and they'll say yeah because someone made it at home as opposed to a factory oh, goodness. and i think yeah oh, okay <laughs> yeah. so that's a big thing and i yeah. always find that surprising so you've taken it out of the factory you've brought it mm. home so it makes it cozy mm. it's uh you know mm. it's more human yeah. than whatever could be happening in a factory and that's just not true of course i mean that's 
in fact, it, the risk seems a little bit higher. If we, but but I appreciate the fact that people are seeking safer. Does that feel like um, what's think, it called? Yeah. Health seeking behavior to you in some ways? I think there is, which yeah. is what I think would surprise a lot of people who are quite critical of of users yeah. of these products. Because I've you know I've had people say to me like, oh yeah, I researched, and so with this product, this won't be so bad. It actually this one is healthier. Yeah. And for example, with glutathione, because it's a natural antioxidant that our body produces. Um, People, you know, will speak of it as this, it's extremely safe. Hmm. And what also is the thing is because, because there hasn't been a lot of research done on the effects of excessive use of glutathione, then hmm. the other side of that is, oh no, then it's fine. Right. Because there's, no one has said there's anything wrong with it. No yeah. one has said there's anything bad. Therefore, it must be absolutely okay. Gosh, your research feels really timely then, because if we don't have long-term, which I know it's different, you know, a scientific... Um, following a chemical through the 20-year you know, lifespan is different than what you're doing. But I think your research is so important because what it sounds to me is like people are making decisions also in a void mm. of data that is, speaks to them from maybe a source they can trust. You yeah. know, that sounds what it feels like to me. Like we're making decisions about things that, you know, we're not necessarily informed on. But then again, there's the agency and all that you're balancing. So yeah. it's complicated. I mean, when you think about posturing the positive change you yeah. know and in your research a year from now let's say it's finished yeah what's the impact that you want your research to have either on the people that you care about in Zambia mm -hmm. or on the industry as a whole that's a tough one uh I think the the biggest thing I would want is conscious consumption mm -hmm. I think that's something I keep coming back to that people are really empowered with the knowledge of what exactly is in their products because like I said, a lot of um, companies don't always disclose what exactly is in there. Um, and that people then from that point move with a sense of knowing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not to say some already don't feel like they are, but like, do you really know? Because I think there's a, because I said the industry isn't always honest, isn't always fully telling you, you know, what's in them. How can you say that you're making a knowing decision right you know right, yeah so I think for me that would be one of the biggest outcomes and also having policy that makes it so that not just policy but enforcement of that policy that makes it so that we have access to safe products that allow us to do the things we want to do whatever that is whatever that is yeah I think mm -hmm. the the main thing and that might be a bit idealistic to be honest but the main thing is that the things that we're using on our bodies are safe Absolutely. I mean, that's the feels like to me like the the starting point. Let's at least start with a place of safety that yeah. someone is not, you know, sitting in the aisle, which I, you know, that feels like a long way off just it, for any consumption, right? I, like yeah. all these days, I mean, it's like our skin, it's our hair. It's, our mascara. It's, that was the mascara, one I learned exactly. about shampoo. Oh no, like, stuff this, in those? Sometimes when know. we do research, you know, <laughs> the other much. side of it is you, you want to just throw away everything you <laughs> exactly. own. You know, even when you think about food, for example, if you actually looked into a lot of the processing, we'd Absolutely. find ourselves with little to nothing, Absolutely. you know? So it's, yeah. it's a tough one to navigate because a lot of these things are symbols of modernity as well. And mm. we want to be modern mm, people. Of We're sophisticated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But the other side of that uh, is that we're exposing ourselves to more chemicals than ever. You know, mm. it's in our soaps. It's in our. So it's not just these products, even yeah. though that's what I'm focused on. Um, we have all kinds of intimate exposures to, to toxicity yeah. um, that 
sometimes we're really taking for granted. But I think if you look at health statistics, it becomes quite clear that what our bodies are taking in, the kind of exposures we're having are extremely abnormal and they're only getting worse. So yeah. when we think of, you know, like I've been at the Climate Change Summit this week and you're thinking about what's happening to our earth, our earth, our earth. I'm like, we need to think of our bodies as this earth too, because the contamination there is, <laughs> is almost as bad here. And so we, in contaminating our own bodies, are also contaminating the earth. There's this kind of cyclic thing going on. And I'm, I'm not sure how we will stop it or how we will manage it. Um, but thankfully, there are other people who deal with the, you know, how, what do we actually have to do? I just say, hey, this is what's happening. What can we do? You know? Oh, but you're enough. doing it so powerfully. I mean, just listening to you, um, you you are also a poet because you've put together those <laughs> words and complicated things, calling our bodies an earth. Mm. I don't know, I'm looking at you guys beyond the camera because I don't know if you <laughs> felt that like I felt that, but I felt that, you know, our body is another earth and how we care for it is so incredible. It's the only earth we have, right? Yeah. This is the only earth we have and this is the only earth we have, yeah. you know? So both of them like need that. our care and our dedication. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess lastly, before we wrap up, as you as you talk to, you must have so many people, younger Zambia, younger researchers, not yeah. Zambians, but they could be Zambians, yeah. <laughs> younger researchers, academicians, or students who are looking at your path and, you know, aspiring to the same, maybe different disciplines. But, you know, what advice do you have, particularly for us on the continent and, and those young people who may go into similar or diverse fields of research as they're starting out their academic journeys? You know, what, what have you learned so far that you would want to pass on to them? I think I've, I've really learned how important it is to show up. And that's a, it seems like a very simple thing, but for me, it's quite challenging. Um, just show up and build that muscle. Having conversation. Conversation is just a starting point, you know? Share your research. Kind of have this mm. external pride. This is something I don't even do enough, but I wish I could, you know, go back and have built that muscle already and already be out there constantly talking about this is what's happening, this is what's happening. So I think I would I would really encourage young and old people, whatever, you know, Wherever you throughout, because yes. we're always learning. Just show up and your voice actually matters. I think being African, there's sometimes this over especially Zambians, we're very humble people, you know. And while that was cute growing up, perhaps, when I was in, you know, rooms in Oxford in, in lectures, that didn't serve me. It didn't serve me at yeah. all. Yeah. In fact, it disadvantaged me because I didn't know how to speak up. I didn't know how to say, oh, I have an idea. I didn't know how to contribute the conversation. And if we can just show up, start there and then build that muscle, I think there'll be so much more, you know, positive output. And then we can also contribute to the things that are being said about the places we come from because we have a more intimate knowledge of our communities and yeah. we have the language to do it. So why aren't we showing up? Let's That's just beautiful. show up. That's so powerful. It reminds me, I think it's Chimamanda who says, go and take, you know, take up space. Yeah. Oh, you that's know? a big one. Yeah, take up it's space. It's scary though. Yeah, of course. It's extremely, it's yeah. nice to say, you know, mm. it's a, wow, take up space. But when it comes to practice, how do you do that? It's, it's intimidating. Yeah. And also it depends on the room you've been thrown into, right? That's so, it. And who else is there? Yeah. yeah. And, and often we think that the people who are there know more. Mm -hmm. And one of my, my struggles I'll say is being worried about sounding silly or not knowing what I'm talking about. But even that knowing is part of the process. And having being able to embrace that is so important. So showing up now is an yeah, example of yeah, that. It absolutely. took everything Yay, out of me because I was extremely <laughs> nervous. But even having had the conversation, I, I feel extremely fortunate to be able to show up. 
Mm. Um, and I hope it will, I hope it will speak to someone. Oh, I we, really do. we are so fortunate that you have the time. Thank like you. I said, Rahma has been talking about you, talking about you. So we're like, fine, bring her. <laughs> so the fact that you're in town this week just feels serendipitous. Um, cause we were just starting season two filming and this conversation has just been so, so rich. Thank, Thank you, Alaba, for the research you're doing, for the way you show up, the light you're casting on these shadows, you know, so that we all can have Conscious consumerism. I like that idea a lot. Thank you. Lily. Well, before we let you go, we always ask our guests two questions. Okay. <laughs> these are impromptu, but very low bar. Okay. As an Oxford uh, student, you're going to think these are, these are silly questions. Let's see. So, let's see. <laughs> so what's your favorite drink? Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to be boring and say, well, no, I was going to say water. But, Please um, don't say, oh, I was say, don't say water. Anything water. <laughs> I'd say, depending on the day, it's either a nice glass of uh, red wine. Okay. Or tea. Those are the two things I go to all the time. I can understand why you would say depending on the day. It depends on the day. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay, those are two popular answers around here. We can accept. Yeah, thank we, you. Even, we would have taken water too. Water is good but, you to know, hydration, yes, yes, people. Yes, it's the key. And it's the key to that beautiful skin exactly. of yours. So you yes, need the you water. Do, you, do. you can't live without it. <laughs> and then the last question, you know, we focus on stories of joy and justice. And we were talking before the show, and I feel like this Talking about who we are, our beauty to me is joyful. And then you're bringing such justice to us by researching it and helping us understand this field of beauty and beauty products better. So thank you for the work that you're doing. But then we also just want to know what is bringing you joy? Oh, right now, people, I, I'm surrounded by, I mean, the best people, mm -hmm. just so loving, so empowering, so kind. Um, yeah, I think, honestly, it's not not even more complicated than that. The people around me. I think yeah. I'm in a season of experiencing a lot of love and encouragement. Even mm. Rahma pushing this conversation, mm. knowing how I felt, you know. Um, my partner, so much love. Yeah. So I'm. that's bringing me joy. And I think it also puts me in the position to, to give joy because I'm coming from a very nourished your cup is full yeah my yeah. my joy cup is very full hey so. we love that we love that <laughs> completely well you've made our cup full both of knowledge understanding curiosity i feel like you've filled many cups today you are too kind. so thank you for that and when you become dr angole yes i hope you'll come back because you have a lot to teach us honestly and we'll come and celebrate you with a big bottle of red wine i look forward to it. i look forward <laughs> to coming back to this yeah. conversation yeah. with you know more information well i mean this has been so rich and deep and i've completely flipped where i started this conversation with you know because i was coming from this angle and you made me look at it from another direction so i've thank done you my for work that. thank you you've done your work <laughs> and it continues and so thank you thank you for thank being you, on Lily. salam and hello it's been such a wonderful wonderful conversation it's been a pleasure um, and listeners i'm sure you have enjoyed this as well so if you have questions for our sister alaba please send us a message. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Salam with an E. And hello, we would love to hear from you, hear what you thought about the episode. She's researching, but we'll pass the questions on if they come. And of course, we would love for you to share, like, subscribe to the show. It really, really helps us out. And until we meet next time, be well. I don't so